Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pets Politics with Mr. Watson. I am most certainly your host, as always, Christian Watson. And today I have Pensive Politics contributor Finn de Poncier and Daily Caller reporter and all-around all excellent journalist, in my opinion, Jorge Ventura. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. We, yes, I, I have brought both of them on to talk to, with us, to us, about the Portland uh, chaos that's happening over there with the protests and the DHS agencies going around and doing all kinds of stuff and the wall of moms, all this stuff. But first, let me just ask you, Jorge, how are you doing? And how has all of this craziness that is happening in Portland impacted your work recently? How have you seen an uptick in your numbers? Have you learned anything new? What's going on in that respect? Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing good, man. I'm uh, happy to be away from the tear gas a little bit, getting a, getting a, short, a short break. Of course. Um, I think for me, the, the thing is just seeing, you know, I've been covering protests in Atlanta, Seattle, here, obviously in D.C. a lot. And I think the biggest difference is just seeing how well organized the protesters are in Portland. They literally have their own kitchen um, at these protests. They have a medic squad. They have a squad that's out there supplying. They have a squad that uses umbrellas to kind of defend the crowd with tear gas and pepper bullets. So just kind of seeing how well organized is uh, kind of the biggest difference. And, and, um, the only, and also how long they clash with the federal officers. I mean, each night they go to about four in the morning. So that's, that's been, been the biggest difference for me. And um, as in, as in content wise, um, you know, the numbers are doing really, really well. I think um, anytime you could be at a place where not too many few reporters are willing to go and, and kind of be on the ground, um, your, your content's always going to be doing good. So I, I usually try to stay there late at night, try to get you guys, um, you know, like the full on uh, action from the ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I have a ton of questions to ask you. I've got a lot of context to establish as well, but I want to ask our contributor here, Finn DePoncier, who hosts a segment on Pensapolitics called Finn Time every Wednesday. I want to ask him if he would like to ask you any questions first. And yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I was really thrilled that you were uh, willing to come on and talk to us, Jorge. Um, I was wondering if you could just give our audience a quick summary of your career, how you became a video, you're a video journalist intern at the Daily Caller, is that correct? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Yeah, so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history and uh, what ended you up in uh, all these different uh, protest zones? Well, the, the funny thing is I, I started off in uh, sports journalism. So, um, you know, my, my dream was probably is just, you know, my goal was to work either with the Raiders or the, or the Lakers and just kind of be like kind of like a beat writer or beat reporter, follow them around. And then um, in 2016, as you guys know, we, uh, we saw that the American trust in media dropped to an all time low. Um, obviously, Republicans didn't trust the mainstream media with the coverage with Trump. But one thing that I found very interesting is that the um, is that the trust on the left was very low as well. I spoke to a lot of Bernie supporters who felt that, th that the Bernie Sanders didn't get the fair amount of coverage with CNN and M MSNBC. And the interesting thing was uh, I was never into politics, so I kind of felt like this was a lane that I could kind of attack. I never voted before, so I'm not a Democrat or re re Republican. Um, and I kind of felt like I could be this new unbiased lane. And so I started off in California. I actually was attending a community college uh, called uh, College of the Canyons, Cougar News. And I've been just following all the all the protests in California. So um, as you guys know, things in California is a real liberal state. So we've, we've been having protests all along. Um, and then with the with the election year, we've had a lot of candidates come to California. I've been able to interview Andrew Yang, Julian Castro, Marianne Williamson as well. And then um, unfortunately, we've had a couple of shootings in California as well. I've been able to cover a couple of breaking news stories. Um, we had we had a shooting at a Thousand Oaks bar uh, that killed 14 people. I was uh, I think the only student reporter at the time covering that 
And basically, I've been just kind of building my own brand and covering all these types of stories. And then um, the opportunity came with the Daily Caller, and uh, and mm-hmm. it was a, it was a right fit to right here for me here in uh, in DC. And uh, now, and I think um, you know the crazy thing too, guys, is I was just supposed to come in, you know, regular doing regular intern stuff, maybe like interview a congressman here or there here in DC. Then, as you guys know, out of nowhere, these riots kind of just came out yeah. of nowhere, and it kind of took the whole news cycle. And uh, we had to all really adapt. And I've been really comfortable on the front lines, you know, due to what I've already been doing in California. I've, I've even done reporting in like Mexico. So I've been really kind of comfortable and having like my life in danger in a, in an odd way. So I've kind of feel like I've been, I've been, been, been prepared for this moment. And uh, yeah, just been kind of all over the country now, you know, Atlanta, New York, Seattle, Portland multiple times, and just kind of seeing, um, you know, this moment in history and documenting on the front lines. I think it's a very unique uh, opportunity that as an intern, I get to be in. It's an opportunity yeah. that I think you'll be able to, to recite and recant to your grandkids if you ever have any, or to future generations that yeah. want to hear more about your story. We're certainly living through um, a moment in history, and I've, I've never uh, felt that so poignantly, only a couple times in my life, but definitely in these last you know four years, um, specifically through the protest movement and the coronavirus. So I discovered you through uh, Sagar Anjedi. Am I saying his last name right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so I saw he posted. Um, I saw he posted about you, and then I've just been uh, following uh, your coverage of the riots night after night, and it looks just hectic. And um, uh, I want to ask you: Have you been? Have you been staying safe? Like I saw that you got tear gas pretty bad. Like, uh, what's it like being a journalist in a conflict zone? And how do you differentiate yourself from the rioters when you're? presenting yourself as an undercover agent. I mean, you're dressing like the Antifa protesters to remain, you know, to, to make sure you don't get beat up by them. So uh, how do you stay safe on the ground? Yeah, so as soon as the uh, riots actually started off, um, they started off here in D.C., they got actually pretty pretty hectic. And that's when uh, President Trump, they basically locked down Lafayette, Lafayette Square Park, the park right across the White House. And um, in my first week of covering this, I actually got shot in the forehead by a rubber bullet (laughs) so that um, that taught me a a lesson so actually after i I got shot on instagram live Mm. and the funny thing Mm -hmm. is is um you know my 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 supporters on instagram are really awesome um someone dm me was like hey man i'm sending you a tactical helmet right this second Mm -hmm. and um so i got the helmet and i think the biggest thing is just um kind of adapting to the situation this is i think a situation not a lot of reporters expected to see here in the u.s um, first it started off of, um, of, of me just kind of watching myself with the, uh, with, with, you know, with officers and stuff and not being, not being mixed in. That's kind of a, a hard distinction for them. So I don't blame them for me getting shot. You know, it is what it is. It's, it's kind of in the, in the midst of, of the moment. But then after that, uh, we had to adapt really quickly because then after that, um, Antifa started to hunt us down and actually tried to threaten us reporters on the ground by stealing our phones or actually just physically harming and assaulting us on the ground. So then it went from, okay, not only do we need protective gear, now we need to go undercover, and now we, not, now we need to kind of adapt to when we, when we can film, when we can't, and just like how, do we, how we carry ourselves. So the whole game has just really been um, adapting to these situations. They're, they're very different. Um, normally, uh, when I'm reporting on the ground, I love to go live, like, like to live stream and give my audience kind of like that live uh, uh, feel. That the problem is now with Antifa watching us is that they hunt down our live streams and then kind of hunt down our location. So if uh, I do if I do go live, um, you'll probably see me going live probably the most maybe like 10 minutes, 15 mm-hmm. minutes. I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll even do 15 minutes, but probably 10 minutes the most just to kind of like keep everything off us. And the whole game has just been, um, you know, adjusting to the, to the whole situation. And then, you know, here in Portland, um, 
the tear gas has been very, you know, I've been tear gas before, but the tear gas in Portland has been very, very strong. So now it's mm. another, it's another adjustment. Um, you know, they're firing pepper bullets every night. So it's another adjustment. Like I just got, a, I posted, uh, I think like a week ago that I got, a, got a vest fitted. I just got the, my gas mask literally just came in an hour before talking to you guys. So wow. Um, it's just kind of adjusting to the situation. And I think another hectic thing is, um, you know, usually like, let's say you're covering an election or, or, or like a campaign, um, you're able to kind of take a video or a picture, then you're in peace. You know, you're able to tweet it out. You're able to think of, of how to code it. These moments are happening right now when we're live tweeting, like while we're live tweeting, things are exploding, tear gas, people are yelling at us. And it's kind of just having, um, you just kind of really have to maintain your composure. And I think that's something I'm kind of been uh, learning myself along this journey. And so tell me something about, because you mentioned Antifa, you mentioned going undercover, and it just, it just strikes me as so interesting that journalism has taken this new hue. I mean, the journalism of 20 years ago definitely wasn't, was not this. I mean, the journalism of 20 years ago, the, the traditional legacy media, which is dying by all standards, which is dying a very painful death because of new media journalists like yourself, thankfully, um, they would not be going into the midst of these kind of things. And if they were, they would be giving people very snippets and very confined instances of what was happening. We wouldn't the whole story when it's live you can actually see the thing play out interactively so speaking of that and speaking of antifa what is this what sense do you get about the group do you get that it is a disjointed collective of people who are just mad and who are hijacking the term anti-fascist to conduct malevolent actions through under the, the pretense of benevolence fighting fascism or do you think these are true believers who actually do believe in what they are doing and view violence or coercion or aggressiveness as a valid means to fight what they deem to be fascism. And a second part of that question, do you think these Antifa people, from what, how you've interacted with them, deem everything that they don't like to be fascism? Or is there an actual method or an actual consistency to that? So answer that how you, how you want, but I'm just yeah. fascinated by the dynamics of this collective sort of. Yeah. The, the, I think there's a, like, I think, I'm, I, it's like a 50-50, I think, for me, that w what I've seen so far. What, what I mean by that is, like, about half of the Antifa group is is these individuals who I think are angry and lost. And I think there is something more deep-rooted. I think the, these individuals haven't found purpose in life. I don't know if as a, as a journalist if I could even maybe say that. But that's how I, I really kind of feel on the ground is this: these individuals are just mad. And I think what happened with George Floyd it almost gives them a sense of purpose for the first time. They kind of feel like they're part of something. Everyone's against the cops. It's like a revolution. A lot of these, I mean, nine out of the 10 of these people are unemployed, as you guys know, because of the pandemic. But the other half of Antifa, I do believe, they truly believe that they are fighting the system. They feel that they are like are on the right side of history. And they do feel like, you know, if they have to use violence to, to accomplish that, they will do that. And um, I've been, honestly, I've been just shocked of how they are out there uh, consistently every single night. You know, we're approaching 60 nights. And to me, um, like I said, I, 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 I kind of hate to use this term. It, it feels like a civil war when you're on the ground. So it's, it's these folks really are kind of bringing a battle. But I do feel like half of this group are lost individuals that really have, don't have a sense of purpose. And I think if you really talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, like for a good 60 minutes, I think they might realize that they, they don't know what they're maybe fighting for, I think. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk, though. They don't want to talk. They want to destroy exactly. it, seems. That's, that's, that's the kicker. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, go ahead I found it um, 
I, I mean, I, I definitely agree that it's not a homogenous group, these protesters. Um, I, I'm sure you saw the video of that massive ex-Navy guy who was just getting absolutely pummeled by the officers, right? They just, um, they hit him with their batons like five or six times, broke his wrist. Um, and I'm wondering with uh, the Department of Homeland Security now in the, in the city, um, local law enforcement no longer have the lead. Um, what has been the progression of violence and the intensity of the riots since, uh, since the federal government stepped in? Because, I mean, it seems like it makes for a much more combustible situation and protesters aren't just angry about George Floyd anymore. It's a very generalized um, grievance about police brutality. And the more you increase the presence of a police state, the more people are going to, I think, justly come out to protest against that. And so it creates this vicious uh, sort of positive feedback loop where violence just, I mean, it's, it just seems to be inevitably escalating. Yeah, I think the whole George Floyd thing is almost lost. It truly feels like these people just want a true revolution and an overthrow the current system at hand. And it, it like, I, like I say, like I, like I keep saying is they're out there every single night. It's almost like they are against to be honest, I, I, I don't even know what it is that they want anymore. You talk to some folks on the ground. Some folks say, hey, we want, uh, you know, defunding the police. A lot of the folks point to uh, what happened in Seattle. I think Seattle's defunding by a whole 50%. Some folks want that, but that's also a minimal group. You talk to the other folks, and a lot of people want to abolish the whole, the whole of police. They don't want any police. And then you talk to the other folks, they want to abolish the whole capitalist system. Like, they don't want Democrats. They don't want Republicans. I don't even know what exactly they want, and mm -hmm. it's just this – the thing is, is this whole group is just now mixed, and now the, the, mess, the messaging just isn't clear. And then I think you also have, obviously, your Black Lives Matter folks who are lost with this Antifa group and who think that Antifa is really on their side when they're, uh, I mean, they're clearly not. I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't really seen any Black people in an Antifa, to be honest with you. Um, so uh, it's just been a, a kind of a weird dynamic to see every day. Um, kind of being on the ground, like I said, it just feels like a lot of these folks are angry and this is kind of their moment to finally maybe point it at something. I think maybe the pandemic played a huge role with all these people unemployed and, mm. you know, these people don't have anywhere to be the next morning. So they're out there to, they could be out there again the whole night. And I think the mess, the messages just got really lost with this whole situation. And I think mm. they're really losing the ground. Um, now with federal officers on the ground, we see, you know, the, the local officials in Oregon, now federal government at, at odds. And to be honest, guys, I have no, I, I couldn't tell you what way this is going to go in Portland. It's, it's, it's kind of a unique, I think it's, you know, we've never seen something like this in, in American history, definitely modern day history. Oh yeah. And, and, and even in other cities like Philadelphia, the, the DA just said, if federal, if federal officers come into my city and begin arresting people, I will prosecute them. So now you have district attorneys fighting the federal government. It's, right. it's, it's, it's crazy because the, sy the system operates in a sort of matrix that presumes that all governments, local and federal, collaborate together to ensure this concept of public safety, but that matrix is being broken and shattered with all that is happening. So in light of that occurrence, let me ask you this. What is the, te what is the tension that you have seen between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement in Portland, and do you think that local law enforcement were using tactics that were perhaps less, um, let's say, less provocative than federal law enforcement seemed to be, or are they basically playing by the same handbook and they're just on a different scale? Well, to to well, to be honest with you guys, as soon as I got to Portland, um, 
I haven't really seen any uh, Portland police on the ground. It's been, it's been all federal officers. So we haven't. Yeah, we've. I think the only time that I've seen Portland police was maybe on the first night. They, um, I think, around like three in the morning when they when they um, called for curfew, they kind of did a thing where they kind of pushed the crowd back and kind of ran um, ran the crowd out in, wow. in, a, in, a, in a in a way. But either than that. It's been very minimal presence from from Portland uh, PD. It's been all wow. federal officers. I haven't seen any Portland police at the uh, federal courthouse at all. I was wow. even reading articles today that that about 114 federal officers are in that court, courthouse. So yeah, fellas, to be honest with you, um, the Portland police presence has been very minimal. I think the only, like I said, the only time I seen them was around three in the morning on my on my on my first night when they uh, when they when they ten, when they finally uh, declared curfew in the, in the in the city and and had to run the run the uh the whole crowd out but either than that it's been um only federal officers that i've seen on the ground yeah and when did you get to portland how long have you been i've been i think my first night in portland was july july 14th i got there guys the same night that Mm -hmm. that one of the protesters got shot in the head either by a canister or i'm 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 still not sure what it was but it it was the it was the one where the the guy got shot in the head i believe his name is donovan labelle and, and he he ended up being in critical uh, um, conditions in the hospital. I think I saw and, yeah. a picture of that. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 just just to just to clarify here, federal law enforcement, the express purpose that was ostensibly stated under President Trump's order sending them there was to protect federal property, which is a legitimate cause. However, it seems to me, from what I have been seeing in the news and from what the empirical evidence is showing, that federal law enforcement have been doing more than simply patrolling federal property and protecting federal property. Is that, is, have you seen that? Have they been doing more than simply protecting federal property? Have they been actually taking the role that a domestic law enforcement agency would theoretically take in most circumstances? I haven't seen them take take the role of of maybe like what what the Portland police uh, would do. I think the situation that they're in is kind of a new territory, right? Like we have every single night this huge crowd attacks the federal courthouse, even that draws out the officers. The officers then fire tear gas, flashbangs, pepper bullets, even clear them out of the park. Even sometimes the federal officers then, due to how big the crowd size is and how late we are in the night, then they do push to to, to downtown Portland streets. Um, that's, that's what we've, we've been kind of seeing every night. It's kind of been the same thing. Um, but I haven't seen them kind of like patrol the streets in a way that, that Portland PD have, have been there. Now, obviously we've seen, um, I know you guys have seen them as well, but we've seen videos on Twitter that, that, that has also shown otherwise, but just from what I've seen on the ground, um, it, it's, it's been, they've been kind of forced to be in this position because the, the protesters throughout the whole night will literally keep attacking the courthouse. And if these guys don't come out, I mean, they might even burn the whole thing down. Yeah. You know, Christian makes a very good point. If there's no uh, local law enforcement around, um, who is enforcing just, you know, normal street crime? I mean, it's just uh, you have a you have a federal government now that's um, uh, I mean, I don't don't even mean it mean to cut you off. But that's actually now that you're mentioning that, you know, one thing that we, we noticed on the ground while we were reporting is we were literally um, we we walked away like a block or two from the from the uh, from the federal courthouse just to kind of like you know maybe like I think it was like to, to recharge our phones and we literally ran into a liquor store that was broken into and the, no there was no response like literally there was no Portland PD so it's it's as soon as you mentioned that, that I I forgot about that moment it, and that that right there was kind of surprising to see like this is what's happening here at 1:45 in the morning and it's just like you know Portland residents feel like they are unprotected you know during these times it's it's uh 
I mean, it's a car, it's a big failure from so, local government. So it my, seems my... to me as if the Portland police are derelicting their duty, and that these elected officials in Oregon don't really have much of a much grounds to complain since their own law enforcement, since they, which they claim are being usurped by federal law enforcement, right. appear not to be doing their job. I, this confuses me. This is really confusing. I, what's going on? I, th- this is just really confusing. I swear. I swear. And, and I just want to add too is is you know Mayor Ted Wheeler has to be you know, on the hottest seats of seats because uh, the left is not happy with him because they want him to abolish the police. Obviously, he's not going to abolish the whole police. So the left is mad at him. When I'm, out, when I'm out there in the protest, they're literally chanting F. Ted Wheeler, F. Ted Wheeler. Even the conservatives and just your regular Portland residents are, are unhappy with Ted Wheeler because they want law and order restored. It's just like on both sides, he's not winning right now. Yeah, it's a horrible time to be a mayor in one of these cities. Um, I forget what his name, the mayor of, um, of Minneapolis, when he got shouted down in that crowd, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, there, there's no way to win. Um, and, you know, we're just seeing the rapid deterioration of uh, local, local government power, especially in law enforcement. And just today, uh, President Trump announced Operation Legend, which is just a, uh, um, a surge of federal officers into cities like Kansas City and uh, Chicago. And I just, I don't see how the momentum gets stopped here. Um, it is a really, really ominous prospect of every American city turning into some sort of battle, battlefield where you have, you know, these protesters and then, you know, a um, semi uh, uh you know, you, you have a federal law enforcement presence that we don't know when it's going to leave. So, and, and add on to that, it's not, not only that, but it seems as if mayors have already preemptively struck at the federal forces that are descending upon their cities and said, listen, if you mess with my citizens, if you do this, we will fight back. I mean, as I said, the DA of Philadelphia already said that, the mayor of Philadelphia is saying that, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, she's saying that. I mean, it, so it seems as if we are coming to one of the ancient impasses of American history, federalism versus, you know, the idea of federalism, states rights versus the government. I mean, this seems to me like it is surfacing and manifesting in a really grotesque way. And for you to be on the front lines of that, my friend, I mean, you are literally step living in a a, a factory almost of history that is creating Mm -hmm. history. Yeah. And one thing we got to remember, guys, too, is this is an election year, you know, so this is I think that that's something that that a lot of folks forget, you know, with the pandemic, race rights, you know, lawlessness, restore law and order, everything that's going on. You know, we got to remember this is still an election year. And, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm very curious of how voters will respond to Trump now sending federal agents into multiple mm-hmm. cities and not just Portland. You know, I thought that, I mean, the president has the perfect excuse to crack down on law and order. But of course, he didn't. Um, he res- he relinquished his ability to play that card by having his rally in Tulsa. And so, I mean, you have both you have both the Republicans and the Democrats not taking uh, the coronavirus seriously now at all. Um, I, I, do, I also wonder how this will play out politically. Um, I mean, when Tom Cotton wrote that notorious op-ed for the New York Times, 58% right. of Americans supported a federal presence. And I was just talking to a woman today on the phone. Um, uh, oh, she's, she has dual citizenship. She lives uh, here in my hometown of Toronto, um, but she flies to uh, her old, home of Pennsylvania all like, uh, every other week. And um, she's a lifelong Democrat. And now she says, I'm voting Trump. Wow. Um, and, and then you wonder on the flip side, like how many lifelong Republicans who, ha- who have made their paramount political um, uh, 
uh, ideology of small government. I mean, are they like, like what is going to be the net outcome of voting in, in terms of um, federal officers being sent in? Will it help the left? Will it help the right? My guess is that the, um, the longing for law and order, I think that's going to get the upper hand here, but president Trump isn't doing too hot in the polls anyway. So. Yeah, this is this is kind of like a, a whole unique position to be in. Uh, one thing I too I wanted to mention that I kind of really noticed, which I thought was a big deal, was um, before the pandemic. You know, if you if you if you spoke to Bernie supporters, you know, Bernie voters, they literally would say, "I'm not even voting in this next election. Like, there's no point in me even voting for Biden because he doesn't yeah. for fifteen dollar, uh, you know, minimum wage, Medicare for all, free college. He doesn't fight for my principles. So it's almost like if I'm just voting voting in another Republican." But the whole thing flipped with this whole George Floyd thing. Now, when I'm out covering the BLM protest, uh, voters who were going to vote for Bernie are like, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we're now voting for Biden because it's like he's not Trump. Mm -hmm. So I'm also curious to see how that would play out is this all these progressive voters who were not even going to participate in the election are now saying, you know what, just because of the, these whole race rights and where the country's at, we have to vote Biden. And, we, you know, we, we have no choice. Right. And you, literally, you can literally tell them, you know, what policies you support from Biden, they, they literally can't, they couldn't name you one. Yeah, um, Biden is, he's largely irrelevant in this election. Well, he's he's an vote. avatar. He's an yeah, avatar for exactly. a, a certain party. He's basically a doppel, he's basically a puppet, essentially. I mean, he even said himself, I am a transition president. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he basically said that. I mean, so the guy is admitting brazenly that he is not going to actually fulfill the duties of the office that he's trying he's trying to get elected to and he'll not that still he, be running campaign ads uh showcasing of course, of course his history with the obama administration oh, when uh, running for his second term you know i mean uh, that, that that's all he has to, to his name it's, it's, it's really it. <laughs> yeah in terms of left-wing cred because obama obviously picked biden as yeah. a balance to his perceivingly uh perceived progressive stance right yeah I mean, it was entirely Remark a political calculation. Remarkably conservative senator all throughout his life, yeah. Absolutely, so. absolutely. And so this is just it's very interesting that a lot of these so-called progressives are portraying their convictions simply to see a, die, a, sort of, a sort of avatar of what they hope to achieve in American politics, get into office when they know damn sure and well that Joe Biden is not going to buckle on some of these very core issues. Joe Biden is not going to push for a phenomenon in ways. He is not going to abolish the police. He's, he, right. is a, he, is at, he is at best one of the last remnants of the old school blue dogs who has been changed and shifted because he is going with the ties of political, uh, of, of political um, viability. So, I mean, if you He's look running back, to the right of Hillary Clinton. Precisely. Right, oh, yeah. Right. Who is already considered a neoliberal, uh, in the words of progressive critics, and a, a, yeah. a sort of proto-crypto-capitalist that wants to destroy people. Now, of course, I don't think neoliberalism is a bad thing at all. I'm just that's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah, and I, honestly, I really wish too that the media would focus. Uh, you know, when we talk about the 2020 election, of of you know what a, a Biden presidency would do with with you know with his current history on trade deals and you know TPP and NAFTA, and you know Biden is a has huge responsibility on why our American middle class has been destroyed and our you know our jobs been shipped to China. Mm -hmm. So I you know that's you know I just wish that was more attacked in the in the mainstream so our boomers could, could, could get yeah that. and and he has an endless history of racist comments and i mean the guy just there's so much um there's so much opposition research to be dug up oh about. it's gonna and be embarrassing this a lot it already is I so mean, it really already is i mean the guy can barely yeah. take do a press conference for more than 10 minutes it's, it's yeah. terrible you know as a canadian we find it very remarkable how long your election seasons are because we like it our elections 
the, the election season lasts lasts about uh, a month and a half campaign mm. the media make money baby that's how the media yeah makes- <laughs> yeah exactly and yep. uh, and uh you know with what is i mean we have four or five months until the election now four like that's a lot of time in politics a yes. lot right yes yep yeah. now let Expect- me just yeah, yeah. Now, let me just ask you one more question on my side. Finn might have some more questions, but on my side, I have one more question. These moms, okay, the the uh, mo- <laughs> the moms marching in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, forming a shield around the protesters. Right. And, and, and there was this, actually this one iconic footage, well, not footage, a picture of this lady. She's in the middle of the street. She's naked, and the police are staring at her in the Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, tell me – from what point i'm trying to i'm not trying not to laugh because i'm trying to be this is a serious matter when you have a bunch of middle-aged women screaming that, that the black their black brothers and sisters are oppressed and it, it, it's just a little bit ridiculous especially when they're able to stand out there and do that those crazy antics um and and basically not really get that much blowback beyond scorn social media so just tell me when did the protest evolve to that to that level um, I think it's 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 just kind of always been there. Um, you're always going to kind of see those type of freaks, I would say, in in a, in, a, in a sense, right? You know, come out there naked. Freaks. Uh, <laughs> um, I think you know. I think for for people who maybe haven't visited visited Portland, just to give them some context, is um, you know when when people talk about California, they say it's a liberal state and stuff, and it's like yeah, it's it's liberal. You know, people want to smoke their pot, and yeah, they want free college, whatever. But when you go to Portland, it's a diff. It's it's not liberal. It's like far leftist. Like like these people are not even like don't want. They just don't want Medicare for all. They want to like overthrow the system. So what I'm trying to say here is, is that type of culture is around the whole city. So mm-hmm. you meet, you know, those types of people are all around uh, uh Portland. And now yeah, we've been seeing the the Portland moms now come out you know, um, kind of, you know, forming like a human barricade defense line for the protesters. So then they get tear gas and they get shot. And then now we're seeing a group of what they call Portland dads with their uh, leaf blowers. Leaf blowers. Yeah. (laughs) You fight off the tear gas. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I just saw this like 30 minutes ago too. It's so this this is analogous. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Jorge. Uh, this is analogous to, um, uh, T- tactics used by the Hong Kong protesters. I was just watching a video by the South China Morning Post where they have uh, this thin yellow line. It's the same sort of idea. I mean, it's this neutral um, uh, buffer zone of people, right? Or this neutral buffer line of people. Right. Um, I mean, w- one thing I wanted to at least add, add, add for you guys is um, the energy in Portland has reunited uh, from my first visit to my second. And um, it, it just seems that, like, as of right now, when you guys check the Portland, the, 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 you know, the Portland protest, it seems like the crowds are actually getting bigger. Um, I was even seeing last night, folks were saying up to 2,000 people were at, uh, at the federal courthouse. Uh, when I got there, it was about, I would say, 1,000 folks. And that's still a huge mob at that time. And, and with how rowdy they are, it feels more than 1,000 people, I'll tell you that much. But um, so it seems like the momentum is picking up as we approach uh, you know, day 60. Um, I'm, I'm very curious if, if we'll, if we'll reach a hundred days in, in, in Portland, I guess, you know, we'll all have to wait and find out. 
you know, as for all these people, all these moms and fathers and people who are, are embodying the sort of archetype of the caretaker, the protector, the, the strong man or whatever, and who are trying to use that and exert their energy around people who they deem to be fighting for righteous cause, I say this, there is nothing more dangerous than a righteous idiot. I swear, righteous idiots are the most dangerous kind of species known to man. And they yeah. exist in many What's forms. What's that Thomas Jefferson quote? Um, a man who knows nothing at all is a man. A man who reads nothing at all is uh, much more ignorant than a man who reads only. But uh, only precisely, precisely. Yeah. I have one more question to ask you, Jorge. What do you think um, it is about these um, Northwest Pacific cities like Seattle and Portland that are such a breeding ground for far left activism? You know, that, that's, a, that's, that's a really good question. I think that's something that I've been trying to even find out myself. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I know from being on the ground, my, my very first trip to Portland was actually last year when it was the big Antifa and Proud Boy clash. And mm-hmm. that was being, huge. Yeah, and being on the ground there, um, you know, just talking to local folks, they, they told me that the very first Antifa group was started in, in Portland. I think, um, I, think I, I, I don't know what maybe breeds it, but maybe – from my perspective, what I've seen is that the law enforcement in Seattle and in Portland is very weak when it comes to combating Antifa or these far leftist groups. And I th- and you know, I'm actually I'm from California, so I mean, I couldn't even imagine Antifa starting up in LA. I mean, LAPD would just run them out of town. And oh, they sure would. <laughs> yeah, and it's the opposite in in Seattle and Portland is is these these uh, groups are able to get away with so much. Um, also, these mayors are very progressive and leftists, and I think that they feel like if they prosecute these guys or if they're too tough um, with law and order, that they might lose their, you know, lose, 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 it, lose their seat, lose an election with their with their voters. But that's actually something that I'm I'm trying to understand uh, as well because I come look I come from California, guys. I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm used to your, your you know your, your liberals, your your Bernie Bros, you know free free health care, you know yeah you you run into people that support socialism, democratic socialism whatever it's not really the craziest thing but when you get to seattle and portland these 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 people actually want anarchy and they want to overthrow the government they they don't even they don't like i said guys they don't want democrats or republicans they want away with the whole capitalist system and we saw that in chopping seattle i mean for that even to happen in the u.s is shocking and it it went for two weeks and it went for two weeks too long because people lost their lives there so to be honest, I myself have been trying to understand and more of, you know, what is it about Seattle and Portland that, that breeds this type of far leftist movement that, you know, we haven't really seen anywhere else in the, in the United States. Yeah. Well, on a cultural level, that's a, that's a very open question. That's a very anthropological um, process we're going to have to go through and try to understand. But on an institutional level, it's very simple. It is complicit, complicitness to the ravenous demands of people who have, who have no idea what they're actually talking about, who do not care about the truth, but instead of care about instilling their radical political agendas through bludgeons, through the baton, not through the spoken word, not through the written word, but through force. That's what it is. What you saw in Seattle, the police chief literally let them take over that district of, of Seattle and t- destroy the businesses and set up their little chop. The, the governor let them. The mayor let them. I mean, it is literally institutional complicitness with chaos that breeds more chaos. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, 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 it just it frustrates me. Because you had people who couldn't get into their homes, couldn't get into their businesses, they lost income. You had a bunch of there's a class action lawsuit going on in Seattle because a lot of people were literally shut out of their lives because a bunch of people wanted to make a statement. It's disgusting. 
And you know what, 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 what really makes me angry, uh, Christian, is the fact that it takes uh, American, lives, American lives to lose their life for a change to happen. You know, we had, it, it took for two people yep. in Seattle to, to get killed. Uh, both of those folks were, I believe, under the age of 21. And, and in Atlanta, too, I, I was reporting on the lawlessness on University Avenue where, where that Wendy's was. And it took for an eight-year-old girl yep, to kill for them to send mm-hmm. national troops. And it just, that, that, that's one thing that angers me, that it, it takes people getting shot and killed for them to say, okay, enough is enough. And for me, to be honest with you guys, that's been the question ringing in my head in Portland is, is it, what is it going to take for this to end? Is someone going to get shot? Is are one of these protesters going to bring a gun and shoot a federal officer or right. vice versa? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, and I just say, I it just, I just hate that we have to get to the point where someone has to lose their life. And then, and then the officials want to say, okay, maybe yeah. we should do something about it. Last question from me. And then I'll, I'll, I'll end it. Unless Finn has a question. Um, so you mentioned, Finn mentioned the Proud Boys, and I want to add the Boogaloos and all those other guys on the right. Have you seen any of them get involved in Portland at all? Because they have been around these protests. They have been involved in these protests in other areas. So have you seen any more of the right-wing leaning groups get, get involved in these protests at all in Portland? I have not seen uh, anything yet, and I haven't heard any rumors of it yet happening either, which, um, to be honest, I'm pretty shocked. Um, but I think, I think the Proud Boys, too, are maybe – they may be trying to – really avoid a, a huge conflict. Uh, but when we, when we were in Seattle, it was actually the opposite. You know, the Proud Boys went in there and I, I, I shot that clip of the, uh, of the, uh, of the uh, women who brought the American flag uh, with, a, with, a, with a black man into CHOP and their security was Proud Boys. But in terms of Portland, we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't, we haven't uh, you know, heard anything yet either. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. And, you know, we'll, we'll, of course, keep an eye out for that. You know, I think these right-wing uh, street protest groups are fading rapidly and they're kind of just willing to cede that job to law enforcement now, right? Yep. I mean, the, the libertarian right-wing Proud Boys, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's fading very quickly. It is. Um, All righty. All right, guys, we're coming up on time. Jorge, Jorge thank you so much for your time. Thank, Finn, you, so thank much. you so much for contributing to this. And everyone, thank you so much for watching. As always, guys, I ask you to please stay pensive.